0: Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. Normally, you'd hear Jackie Wisman say that we're the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy, but unfortunately, we had a massive storm yesterday in DC and her power is out, so it's just me today. But we have a great guest, so we're really looking forward to a great conversation today. Our guest is Dave Vasco. He's the Director of Advanced Technology at Rockwell Automation, where he's responsible for the development of advanced technology to realize the future of industrial automation. He serves on the NIST Visiting Committee on Advanced Technology. And he's on the board of the Five Lakes Institute and is a member of the Forbes Technology Council. Dave also holds 77 patents, which is really amazing, uh, in industrial automation. And for those of you who don't know Rockwell Automation, they're the leading, one of the leading automation and, and industrial systems companies in the world. They're headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So, Dave, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Rob, thank you. It's an honor to be here today.
0: So, Before we get into the whole question of automation, which is clearly a huge issue, and and there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding about it, particularly in Washington and and really all around the world with, I think, with policymakers. Can you tell us a little bit about Rockwell and, and what your role is there?
1: So Rockwell Automation is the largest company dedicated solely to industrial automation and information. We've had the honor of serving our customers since 1903. And you may not know our products, but we like to say by the time you arrive at work in the morning or having your first cup of coffee, you probably have experienced four or five of the things we help make, be it, be it coffee or, or beverages or food or, or petroleum or automobiles. So we're really part of people's lives. I've had the uh, really the honor of being at Rockwell for 36 years. I'm responsible for applied R&D, global standards and engagement and innovation institutes. So we get to try out the technologies that are emerging and see how they could be applied in the industrial space and really to to bridge those gaps to apply those technologies
0: yeah you know in the in the innovation ecosystem or literature or policy oftentimes people focus on product innovation they oh we're going to you know i'm waiting for the iphone 15 or uh, it's going to be a new drug and and that's super important no doubt about it but oftentimes we lose sight of the importance of what's called process innovation, how we make things. And there's been an enormous amount of innovation there since Rockwell started and a lot of it from Rockwell. Tell me a little bit about you know, what is process innovation? Why should we care about it? Why should a policymaker care about it?
1: Oh, absolutely. So that that's what really allows our products to be competitive. By working on the process to make things more productive, be able to produce more product to be able to control the quality of that product, to be able to integrate the supply chain to ensure there's resiliency in actually producing the product, that, that's crucial. That's, that's where the prices of the end products come down, the availability goes up, people can afford those things. So that's really crucial to the economy and it's crucial to the job creation.
0: You know, I, I'm going to sound like a total wonk here, which I am. But one of the favorite things I do when I'm on vacation is I try to find places where they'll give you a free tour of a factory. And that's, you know, I have I've visited a Ford Motor Company factory. I visited a teddy bear factory in Vermont. That was cool. Uh, I visited the Philip Morris factory. Uh, you can Say you like, don't like cigarettes or like them, but I got to tell you, the way they make cigarettes is, is pretty cool. And I visited a factory in, in Italy a couple of years ago, and, and what was striking about it was it wasn't a big, giant factory. It was a you know, mid-sized company, and, and what they actually made were electromechanical switches that are on appliances and dishwashers and all, all these things. And, and what was really interesting about it, though, was that they had worked with their local technical college, And one of the professors there and all of the employees were now wearing Apple watches and they had to use what's called the Internet of Things and and Wi-Fi and all. And they could really tap into machines in real time if a a machine was slightly off. I mean, they told me, like, you know, machines have tolerances and if it goes out of tolerance, you can have a run that's just you have to throw it away. And he said they would look at machines at the end of every day. Uh, Now, in real time, they know exactly what's going on. Anyway, that's this whole thing of what people talk about, smart manufacturing, or Europeans call it Industry 4.0. Can you lay that out for us a little bit? What is all that all about?
1: Yeah, so you're right. It's really about changing the pace. So I'll be honest, I've seen a mining application where they do a mining plan once a year. And you think about all the things that can change in a mine within a year. You'd love to be able to do that every day. And that's really where it's going to be, do it every day or do it in real time. When somebody's in the line, look at what's happening, what you're producing, how to optimize it, make sure the quality is where it needs to be because you, you don't want to be sitting there producing scrap all day. And worse yet, you don't want to be producing something that could get out to your customers and then have bad quality and have to pull it back in. So that's really where the focus is to be able to monitor those things in real time to really give the people on the production floor additional powers to be able to find what those problems are to optimize things and keep the quality where it should be.
0: My colleague, Stephen Azell at ITAV has really done a lot of work on this whole question of smart manufacturing and what are the policy questions. And people were talking about this since, say the year 2000, 2010, but it's really only in recent years where you have sensors that are cheap enough. You've got wireless systems that can communicate, you got software systems. So it was really now machines talking to each other and machines talking to people that enable this to happen. You know, we always had, well, I shouldn't say always, but with the rise of what are called CNC machines, computer numerically controlled machine tools, those were a big improvement over the old kind where a worker had to set them up. But now we're at a whole new level where the machines are connected. And what's that all about? Why is that important?
1: yeah I, you're seeing the the interconnections between machines, and we we've had productive machines in the past now you're seeing more and more of the machines connected and you're right that we have been talking about this since the really since the year two thousand we've we've been looking at how this is going to change industry, and the technologies really have risen up that allow that to happen um, but by machines interconnecting amongst themselves, they can then operate together, they can optimize together to come up with the best operation. And some of this is non-intuitive. You may slow down one machine in order to speed up the entire line. And without a system view, you wouldn't have been able to see that in the past.
0: And that leads into another component, which we haven't talked about, and that's software and and AI. I know we had a conversation a while ago, Dave, you might not remember it, but I was really intrigued by what you had said, was that you're working with your customers to develop AI that's sort of easier to handle, that you don't need to be some computer scientist in Silicon Valley to manage this. Can you say a little bit about the role of sort of intelligence and AI in these, and then also about the, I don't know, lower skill or moderate skill AI that's being rolled out?
1: And that's really the key, to be able to have people with domain knowledge make the decisions and apply the AI. If it's just PhD data scientists, it's not going to have much applicability. We don't have enough people trained, and it's going to be too expensive to apply. So what the AI methods have been trying to do is be able to recognize patterns and create the groupings of those patterns, and then use the domain experts to make decisions about what that is. You have a number of groupings. Okay, these groupings represent a, a quality product operating correctly. These groupings represent a particular problem you may be facing. And the people on the floors, the people that are experts or the people that are at the main or at that machine or even the operator are the ones that understand that the best and they could provide the insight. That would have taken a huge amount of time by a data scientist to understand. So that's really leveraging the human processing power of those people to be able to give them superpowers give them an augmentation of what they're doing.
0: This is a little bit like what people call uh, AI as an enabler. People talk about, it, for example, that that radiologist might get put out of business by AI. I don't really believe that. What AI does for an expert radiologist is it gives him or her an extra set of tools to complement their own insights and, and skills. And that sounds like what's happening here on the, on the shop floor, a, a skilled worker now as a tool, essentially. That, and, and they help with the tool and the tool helps with them.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it also jumpstarts people coming in. We're having a, a lot of new people coming in. In factories, we're seeing some most experienced people leaving. And it typically takes years and years to gain experience. But if we can give people insights into what they're doing, that would have taken 10 years to develop. If they can have those insights coming into the environment and being able to provide them with additional help, that chum starts their their careers and their impact on the organization immediately.
0: I want to go on one little side route here just for a moment. Uh, we have a new initiative on XR, or essentially virtual reality, augmented reality, and really looking at the promise of that in a whole set of areas: healthcare, education, and all. But I've heard that you can use XR, or VR, like Microsoft HoloLens, for example, to help newer workers or existing workers really be able to understand things that it might take them a longer time to understand. Is that something you see as well?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lot of uses for that. So we're using VR to actually construct plants before they're ever, ever built and we can then train workers in in how to interact with the plant. We also can pilot the operation of the plant. We can put simulation tools behind the plant. We can do optimizations in the plant. We could see workflows that may be a problem, that you you, um, have restrictions there, so you maybe leave a little more room for operators to get in there and work. So we could do all that ahead of time and train those people, particularly in operations that may be a little bit dangerous or require a lot of skill, You want to try them ahead of time. You want to get good at them before you're ever in a situation where you need to do that. And then when we get into the operational phases, you think about somebody going out on a plant floor. If they have a a HoloLens AR headset, they can go out there and they can have an expert in their ear, seeing what they're seeing, helping them to troubleshoot that. And we could have that expert. We could push down a video to them. We could push down information about that equipment, maybe a checklist if it's something they only do occasionally what they need to do for that particular operation. So that really helps the the users. Instead of sending somebody to a plant um, to actually check something out, we could just have somebody with a HoloLens headset that is already familiar with the safety operations of that plant walk through and do those operations, and that just speeds things up.
0: Plus, I, I would assume it also gives that operator more knowledge, more experience, perhaps the next time he or she can maybe do it more on their own.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It it gives them that experience and they're able to, to learn that. And with so much of things rolling out, it allows them to really get the, the training many times just in time. So they're not having to look through all these scenarios that could occur, but they get the training they need right when they need it.
0: You know, one question we hear a lot about, there's an economist at MIT that I've had a debate with, uh, Darren Asamoglu, who has, I think, a very, I don't know, to me not very accurate or helpful notion of that there's good automation and bad automation. And, and he's been very critical of automation and robots. And, you know, our take at ITIF is all automation is good and and, and there are going to be some processes where you can just automate it and you can, you can have fewer labor hours to produce something. There are going to be other systems, though, where you're using automation or robotics to either complement the worker or to do things you couldn't do. And I know we talked once about, I think it was the BMW plant in, in Germany that was using uh, these smart in, smart systems, robotics, et cetera, but they were doing it in a way to basically increase their product flexibility dramatically. Can you talk a little bit about how that all plays out?
1: Sure. So that's, that's the one thing. I mean, humans have the ability to be to, to really react and be able to do things very flexibly. And robots and automation have the ability to do repeatable operations. So you want to use the best of both. So you'll see operations where you may use maybe using cobots to be able to learn things very quickly. And the, the humans teach them to do that. And uh, they're able to do those repetitive operations. And the humans are able to, to take up the slack in between. But that that working together is crucial. And that that productivity from and having that flexibility to be able to react to those changes and demand are crucial.
0: And you know we see that right now, for example, with some of the supply chain vulnerabilities and some of that, not all of it, and some of it is just your your system is committed to produce a certain kind of thing, and it takes a while to shift and some of these new technologies, including Cobots, can make that those shifts much easier to oh, you see demand is going to go this way, you can quickly shift over and meet that demand.
1: Yeah, and we've seen that a lot over the past 18 months that manufacturers are asking for more flexibility, particularly maybe the the end packaging, like um, a food processor um, that was geared more towards the restaurants found that um, that market was drying up where the consumer market was just uh, going gangbusters. And if their manufacturing line was restricted to only producing, say, 20-pound bags of, of French fries, they didn't have a market anymore. And they found that they were running three shifts and couldn't meet demand for the consumer market. So we've seen more flexibility in how they approach that. And that the flexibility wasn't always valued. I think people are seeing the need for it now, even to, to pivot to things they think they could even do in the past. And we've seen people do that.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, we've all, ex- we all experienced that with toilet paper uh, early on in the, I, I actually remember I went online to, I think, uh, Office Depot or Staples or whatever, and I bought, I bought, I bought like four boxes of office toilet paper, because that was the only toilet paper you can get. And I'm like, hey, I got toilet paper, because uh, you couldn't buy the small rolls. Well, so I got these big giant rolls. Uh, that if we had flexibility, I wouldn't have had to, had to have done that.
1: Yeah, that's true. And they were having trouble selling those. They were having trouble selling those. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great example.
0: I want to jump into some of the policy questions. But before I do that, we have a new, well, probably the piece will be out by the time our podcast is out. But we've been looking at U.S. productivity growth in manufacturing and using the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers. And what's really striking is if you go from, say, 1998 to 2008 or so, what you saw was about a 40% increase in productivity and then if you take that next 10 year period through 2019 you actually saw a slight decline in productivity so 10 years without it, real productivity gains now some of that could be mismeasurement uh, some of it could be that it's just it's super hard to be more productive because we've made factories so productive but part of it might be also that these new technologies you know that Rockwell's piloting and other companies are not quite there yet, being they're still early in adoption. A lot of the kinks and the bugs are being worked out. People still need to know how to use them. What's your take on all, all of that? Is, is that? you think that's a reasonable hypothesis?
1: I think that is. I think that's on the right track. So I, I think, you know, maybe we did pick the low-hanging fruit, but I'll be honest, we're bringing some pretty big ladders into the orchard right now. So you look at the technologies that are rolling in, um, really, the widespread um, industrial networks, and be it wired or wireless that are coming into the factories. And we're still early on that. I think we're doing very well, particularly with some of the cellular networks outside. Those are going to migrate more inside on-premise networks. Those are going to provide increased connectivity within the factories. That's going to help. Resurgence, really, in AI and machine learning, particularly some of the most difficult applications around vision and natural language processing, are being solved, um, but there's still a problem applying those. And we're getting to the point where are making it easier and easier for people to apply it. It isn't, uh, it isn't quite there yet, but, but for, for many applications it is, and people get more experience with that, it's going to help. We've seen significant advantages in the processing in either cloud or at the edge that really allow these things to happen. And then the whole thing with the XR technologies that we talked about, and things like digital twins. So these technologies are rolling in, and we expect to see pretty significant increases in in productivity from that, in reduction of downtime, and improvements in quality around those things.
0: That's really interesting. You mentioned digital twins. I was in Italy about a year and a half ago, or maybe I don't know, maybe longer. And I visited this company, and it was the coolest company. What they made were machines that that Dasani and all the water bottle companies use. And they basically had two main machines: one that made the little caps, and one that made the bottle. And I talked to the chief engineer, and he said that the tolerance—I I can't remember what it was—was it was like four microns or something. I mean, it was just like. Like smaller than a hair. And, and he showed me the machine that makes the caps. And what they do is the worker pours in these plastic pellets at one end, and about 20 feet down the way, out comes, I think, a million caps a day. I mean, mind-blowing. Mind but... I was talking to the engineer about that, and he said one of the things that they're doing is they're developing digital twins for all their customers, and that gives them the ability to monitor these machines, maximize output or efficiency. And I thought that's really, really interesting that that the notion of a digital twin, where you have the sort of the same machine but in digital, and then you can monitor it for uh, improvements and also learn from the machines. That that seems quite new.
1: Yeah, that's a really good. One. Way to apply digital twins. I mean, on a machine basis, to be able to monitor the machine, to see how it wears, where things are going to change. And actually, the digital twins have been around for a long time, but it does take some work to get there. And that's what really has limited the adoption. So we're seeing more adoption. First one I applied was even over 20 years ago, applying a digital twin in a factory. It was actually a case where there would be wear in the line, and it was a steel mill. They weren't able to actually – they would have problems when they switched from one product to another product they could lose up to 10 tons of steel. So they'd have to kind of tweak in the parameters, the operator would have to tweak in the parameters every time and they could change up to two dozen times per day. So what we did, we created a digital twin of this steel mill and we learned where everything was, where the machines were, the tolerances were, where the wear was occurring. So when a new product came up, we would make the adjustments based upon that wear. And instead of losing 10 tons of steel, we never lost a gram. We were able to hit every time uh, spot on with what was planned. And one of the side effects was we could have things that were broken in the plant. And we'd be able to say, yes, you could produce it or no, you wouldn't. And we can make adjustments. So even with broken equipment, there's still many of the products they could still produce. Uh, so I think that that's a great example. I do love the the bottling. I've, I've been to those uh those manufacturers for the machines, and it's it's just amazing what they're able to do. I love the like the measurements. They're actually we visited one that had fourteen different measurements for volume because depending what you're making, you're filling with water or cognac, you really want a little different uh, accuracy with that. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. I don't know. Water is pretty valuable these days. Yeah. So, Dave, just switching over now for the last few minutes about about policy. Now we could talk for a long, long time about manufacturing policy. There does seem to be a resurgence of interest in it. The the Biden administration with Build Back Better, they've proposed new initiatives. You've got the Senate, what's called USICA, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. There's a number of important manufacturing and applied R&D components there. What do you think are the couple of things that the federal government needs to do in the manufacturing space to make sure the. US. is globally competitive and more productive
1: Yeah so I think there's we need to bring the small and medium manufacturers along and I'm not saying we forget the big manufacturers, but we need to make sure the small and medium manufacturers are able to adopt the technology and um, they just' don't, they don't have the R&;D groups that they may not even have an IT team. They probably don't have a security person. So we need to give them the tools they need to sort through the technologies and be able to apply those. Things like the Manufacturing Extension Partnership that that NIST helps to run, or which actually helps small mean manufacturers learn those things. Manufacturing USA, actually looking at those challenging problems, doing the pilots with manufacturers to help them get them along and apply these technologies. That's really so important to being able to, to move these things along and make our manufacturers more productive.
0: Absolutely. We, we could not agree more. My colleague, Stephen Azell wrote a report for NIST a number of years ago where we benchmarked the U.S. MEP program against our competitors. And while MEP is a fantastic program, one of the key things we learned was that our competitors are investing significantly more in those kinds of programs as a share of their economy. The Japanese invest 40 times more, 4-0. The, the, the Germans, 20 times more. So I'm really glad to see that there been proposals to significantly increase the MEP. Hopefully they'll go through. Same thing on Manufacturing USA. This was an initiative that we helped push in the Obama administration. The Chinese looked at it and they said, we want to do that too. They now have 15 centers and they want to go to 45 or 50. But their funding is an order of magnitude higher than ours. They're putting big, big bucks behind these or big, big yuan's I should say, behind this thoughts on uh, if we expand Manufacturing USA, how that should work?
1: Yeah. So we are we are seeing increases in the funding. I think that's good. The one thing we're seeing too is that some of those are being funded through the Department of Commerce. So the Nimble was funded through the Department of Commerce, and there's two more that look likely to come from the Department of Commerce. So I think that's, that's good. It's probably more resilient as far as the funding coming directly from Commerce. So I, I like that approach. Yeah, I think, I think we can make some big investments. I mean, manufacturing partnership was always frustrating to me because the the payback, we heard of investment, was so high. We received more tax dollars back than the investment. So it was one of those things, why don't we double it? Why don't we cut it? Why don't we put 10 times more into that to really get more people adopting these technologies? And we're going to need it. We're going to need it. And it's not just for the small and medium. The, the, the large manufacturers need that ecosystem if they're going to thrive.
0: Yeah. I mean, case in point, we did an event recently. The White House asked us to host on the new Biden supply chain report, which if the listeners haven't listened to it, it's a fantastic report. I haven't read it. Uh, And they looked at four industries, including semiconductors and biotech and drugs. But small and medium-sized manufacturers are the key thing for the U.S. supply chain health. If you don't have that you get oems uh, bigger manufacturers that ended up oftentimes going offshore because they don't have the supply chains here so yeah I, c- I couldn't agree with you more that that's something we've got to really focus on so maybe one one last question dave and that's uh and that's tax policy so we had In the U.S. for many, many, many decades, we had an investment tax credit. And my favorite story of that was back in the early 80s, Larry Summers, the well-known economist, he wrote an article for the National Bureau of Economic Research, and it was an evaluation of the investment tax credit. And what he found in that, he ran this big model, economic model, and what he found is that if you have the investment tax credit, you get more investment, no surprise, you get uh, more productivity, and you get a bigger GDP. So what was his conclusion? Get rid of the investment tax credit because it raised interest rates just a tad because there was so much demand for, for capital now that it raised interest rates a bit. And that meant there were fewer, like a few, a teeny fewer housing starts. So Larry Summers said, we can't have an industrial policy like that. We should have more housing. Congress eliminated the investment tax credit. Guess what happened? Investment, particularly in machines, systems went down. Now, in the 2008 tax bill, Congress, uh, you can argue we liked it or not, but, but I thought the main thing that they did that was good and on the business side was they allowed companies to expense in the first year their expenditures on equipment and machines. Before that, they had to write them off over five or even 10 or 15 years. Now they can write them off. That's due to expire, I believe, at the end of this year or next year. I should get my numbers right, but it's due to expire. It was a five-year provision, and we're very supportive of expanding or extending that. Um, what are your thoughts on that in terms of the tax incentives or decisions that companies make? Uh, how does that play out?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's an important program, and I think I love looking at the time frame because you look at manufacturing, and many people think about it as five, 10, 15, 20 fifteen, twenty-year investments. But if you want to grow, if you want to be competitive, you have to do it on a shorter horizon and be able to take advantage of those investments and write those off within the first year allows you to be more nimble and to have that flexibility that we really need to be able to competitive be competitive worldwide. So yeah, we think that's very important.
0: Yeah. And a lot of other countries, again, they they they, they don't just do expensing, which is nice. They, they actually go further than that. They'll do a credit our competitors really get that. So so Dave, this is really fantastic. I'd love to keep going, but we have a time limit on these. So I really want to thank you so much for being with
1: us. Rob, uh, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure talking with you and, and really appreciate everything you do to really bring this information to people and what's, what's actually happening in the industry.
0: Thank you. And uh, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. We have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes will drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in.